The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. The scripture reading for today is Revelation 3, 7 through 13. To the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. In... 2016, Martin Scorsese brought to the big screen a book written by Shishako Indu called Silence. What's the movie about based on this book? Well, the plot follows two 17th century Jesuit priests who travel from Portugal to Japan to locate their mentor and spread the Roman Catholic faith. When the two missionaries arrive to Japan, they immediately witness the horrible persecution of the Japanese Christians by the authorities there. These Christians were burned to death, scalded with hot water, hung upside down, beheaded, drowned. They were hung on crosses at the beach. And they died as they hung there, being battered by the high tide. This movie, in a very difficult way, puts before the eyes of the audience the ongoing suffering of this small group of Japanese Christians. And tragically, this book is not just fiction. It's based on a history. It's based on the reality of suffering and persecution that many Japanese Christians endured. And as you watch the movie, and you're faced with this persecution, you can't help but be struck, really whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you can't help but be struck by how powerless these Christians are. You can't help but be struck by how weak these Christians look. You can't help but be struck by how powerless they, they appear. You can't help but have this sense of 
hopelessness as you watch this small group of Christians just experience trial after trial after trial at the hands of a government and a force that seems so much more powerful than they are. They look weak and they look doomed to fail. Well, last week, if you can remember, in the sermon, we talked about the church at Sardis. And we talked about their great reputation. They were the church that everyone wants to attend. They were the church that if you put their life in a movie, you would go, success, prosperity, uh, the Lord's blessing. Look what God is doing there, right? But we saw that the reality was different. Jesus looks at the church and says, although you have a, a great reputation, spiritually, you're dead. You're dead. Well, this week, in the letter to the church at Philadelphia, we, we get the opposite. Listen to what Jesus says to this church. He says to the church at Philadelphia, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know that you have little power. What's the church of Philadelphia? Well, the, the church of Philadelphia is the storefront church in the bad part of town that loves and worships Christ. When people visit this city, they don't, they don't go to that church, right? Um, the church of Philadelphia is the rural church in the middle of nowhere that practices this long obedience in the same direction, no matter how mundane or simple it may look. They're like the many churches around the world that have to meet in secret to even meet at all. When you look at the church, you can't help but feel that they look so weak, that they look so insignificant, that they look so powerful. In the letters to the seven churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia look the weakest. Um, and yet, and I, I think this is a prophetic word for our time, Jesus looks at their weakness and he looks at their insignificance and he doesn't say it's because they've been doing something wrong. Right? Um, he offers them no word of rebuke. Rather, he shows them their strength. He goes, I, I know you think that you're weak. I know that you think you're insignificant. And I know that everything around you is telling you that narrative about your faith and about the church in the city. And so you need to see something different. You need to see the reality because it's so hard to see. The reality is that you have so much strength, that you are strong. Jesus knows that this church, in the midst of all of their weakness, needs to see the spiritual reality. And this letter that he writes to them is just filled with promise after promise to them. Uh, I said last week that Jesus is the great physician that knows the medicine 
that his church needs. He knows the medicine that our hearts need. And so last week with Smyrna, he, he gives them a dose of, of warning because they're about to fall off the cliff and he wants them to see the reality to which they're headed, right? Well, this week with Philadelphia, with this weak church, he knows the medicine they need. And what does this weak church, what medicine do they need? They need his promises. They need to hear him speak his wonderful promises over them. And church, we need the same word today. Because these promises are not only for Philadelphia. These promises are for all who follow Jesus. They're for us. And so like I said in my prayer, I don't know where you are this morning. But my prayer is that you would hear the promises of Jesus on your life and that it would empower us to go into the world weak, small, insignificant, and bear witness to him. Okay, so I want to look at these promises together. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing. So let's look at the first promise. Look at verse 7 with me. Jesus promises them an open door that no one can shut. Jesus promises them an open door no one can shut. Look at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. How is Jesus described in verse 7? He's described as the one who has the key of David. Now, this is a reference to Isaiah 22, 22. Um, what's going on in Isaiah 22, 22? Well, Isaiah 22, 22, I've said that a lot, is talking about Eliakim. And Eliakim held a prominent position in King Hezekiah's court. You can think of Eliakim as kind of the prime minister, a Churchill of sorts. Not really, but you get what I'm trying to say. Um, and in this verse, it says this, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Well, what's happening here? Well, Eliakim was given authority and he was given power to rule over Israel. He was given the key to the kingdom. Do you see this image of power and authority? Well, now here in this verse, we see that just like Eliakim was given authority and power over the kingdom, Jesus rules over the people of God, his multi-ethnic church, the true Israel. It's Jesus who has the power to determine who will and who will not enter the kingdom. It's Jesus who has authority to open and shut the door to eternal life in the kingdom. It's likely that many of these Christians reading this letter would have had doors slammed in their face. It's possible that the Christians reading this letter had the door of the synagogue closed in their face. They were kicked out. And here Jesus wants his church to hear, listen, I know you've been kicked out. I know you've been pushed to the fringes, but they don't have the key. 
I have the key. In Christ, salvation's door has been open to you and I and for all who proclaim Christ and no one and nothing can shut it. I think we need to hear that this morning, afresh. The door to salvation has been open to you. And no matter what's happening in this very moment, your enemies cannot shut it. The door of salvation has been open to you and your suffering cannot shut it. The door of salvation has been open to you and death cannot shut it. The door of salvation has been open to you and in Christ, your own sin cannot shut it. Jesus holds the key. And that's good news. Because you may feel vulnerable. You may feel alone. You may feel exposed, but you have more security than you could ever imagine. The Lord of salvation has been opened to you. And no one will shut it. It's the first promise. Look at this second promise with me. The second promise is Jesus promises that those who oppose them will bow at their feet. Jesus promises them that those who oppose them will bow at their feet. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, I imagine that as we read that verse, the phrase, synagogue of Satan, stands out. Right? I think we need to say from the beginning that Jesus is not anti-Semitic. Jesus is a Jew, and he's writing to a church where there would have been ethnic Jews in the congregation. Also, I think we need to be clear and say that Jesus is not using language here to incite violence towards the Jewish community. He's speaking to a church that has been persecuted and is powerless and weak. He speaks to encourage them and to show them the reality of the situation. And what's the reality of the situation? Well, if you can remember from Jonathan's sermon on the letter to the church at Ephesus, there's the same language. And do you remember what's, what was going on there? Well, the title Satan literally means the accuser. And that's why these ethnic Jews are called a synagogue of Satan, do you see? Because they're aligning themselves with Satan's purpose in doing what he does to God's people. Accuse them. Accuse them of not being the people of God. It's also likely that some ethnic Jews from the synagogue were instigating persecution against the church. And so in persecuting the church, they're doing the work of the devil. Do you see? But I don't want that to stand out and us miss the promise. Because it's a shocking promise that God would look at this church in Philadelphia and say that these people who are persecuting them, these people who are opposed to them, will bow down at their feet. I don't want us to miss that imagery. What shocking imagery. Right? Maybe makes us a little uncomfortable. Right? 
Well, here in this passage, with this imagery, we have this ironic fulfillment of Scripture. Because, back to Isaiah, in Isaiah 45, in Isaiah 49, in Isaiah 60, there's this prophetic imagery of the Gentiles in the last days coming and bowing down before the nation of Israel. Uh, The Gentiles, they come, and they're not worshiping the nation of Israel. They're bowing down. It's this representation that they're acknowledging that Yahweh is the true God, and that Yahweh favors these people. That's what's going on. And so now, in this ironic fulfillment of this promise from Isaiah, we see ethnic Jews from the synagogue come to bow down at the feet of the multi-ethnic church, composed of Gentile and Jew, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and he loves the church. Jesus looks at the church and he says, I know you're weak. I know you're being oppressed. I know that you look at the world around you and you say, there's no way that these people will ever come to worship me. But Jesus says, I am powerful enough to open the eyes of those those who oppress you. I am powerful enough to soften the hardest of hearts. And I don't know about you this morning, but I need to hear this promise. Because this promise is true, right, for the Church of Philadelphia, and it's, it's true for us. Um, in February 2019, though the country of Iran was facing political and economic crisis, uh, Christian workers were reporting that their message of the gospel was being received in a way that they had never experienced before. Um, Evangelists in Iran said that for every ten people they speak to about Christ, six or seven are ready to respond. One Christian leader on the ground said, at no point before has Iran been so eager and ready to hear the message of the gospel. This is just one example, right? Um, I could spend the rest of my time telling examples and stories of situations where you and I would look at it and say, there is no way that God could move there. Right? Um, I think I could spend time talking about how in 2019, Kanye went from Jesus to Jesus. Right? Uh, I could spend time talking about how two uh guys from my high school who led the party scene a few years ago had an encounter at a Bible study where one was leading the Bible study and the other was there because he had been in jail. And when he was in jail, someone placed a Bible in his cell and he started reading the Bible and came to faith and then was searching out uh, Bible studies is some sort of affirmation, and he shows up to the Bible study to see one of his close friends from high school who was with him in the party scene that led him down the road that ended in a jail cell, was there leading the Bible study. These are just a few stories. I could spend the rest of my time talking about situations where we say there is no way that God can move. There is no way that God can work in the hearts of these people. But he does. And when he does, what does he do? He shows us how small we think he is. And he shows us 
the box that we've put him in. And he shows us that we think he has to work in this certain way and the church needs to do these certain few things and then if all these things can align, maybe there's this chance that someone will come to faith in him. But he just shows up in powerful ways. He promises that to the church of Philadelphia and he promises that to you and I. And when people come to faith and people embrace the gospel and they proclaim Christ, it is just a foretaste of what will happen at the end of all days when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And on that day, the people of God will experience vindication. Our faith will be turned to sight. Um, What we've hoped for will be experienced. And there, the nations will come and profess the love of Jesus for his church. We need to hear that this morning. All right. Promise three. Let's take a breather. Promise three. Jesus promises his church, this third promise, that he will keep them from the hour of trial. That he will keep them from the hour of trial. Look at verse 10 with me. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Okay. So Jesus says in these verses, I want to point you to these words, I will keep you from the hour of trial. What is he saying here? Is he saying that there's some period of suffering, that there's some trial, that there's some tribulation that's coming for them, and he's going to physically protect them? Uh, Some Christian interpreters interpret this that way, that it's a physical protection. Some Christian interpreters see this as referring to a future rapture. Ah, you might have been checked out, but I just said rapture. And so now you're back in with me. That's how some interpret the passage. Is this physical protection from a period of tribulation, or suffering, testing for the people of God? All right? Well, I don't think that's what's going on here. And you might say, why don't you think that's what's going on here, Brad? Well, I'm so glad you've asked, because I've been thinking about it. And the reason that I don't think that's what's going on here is because the same verb and preposition combination, keep you from, the Greek is toreo ek. That phrase, keep you from, is only found in one other passage in the New Testament. Do you know what that passage is? If you do, put it on the screen. You'll get a prize. Jonathan will pay you something. I don't know what it will be. But you know what passage that is? That's John 17, 15. Hear Jesus' words. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
Ah, okay. My prayer is that you don't take them out of this world, you don't remove them from the suffering and trials of this world, but that you do what? You protect them from the evil one. It's clear. Jesus' prayer is not that his disciples would be removed from physical suffering, but that there would be spiritual protection from the enemy. All right? Uh, my interpretation of this, that it's a spiritual protection, not a physical protection, is backed up by the fact that in none of the preceding letters to the churches does Jesus promise them physical protection. But he has promised them spiritual protection. If this verse is promising physical preservation, then it would be the only text in the entire book of Revelation that does so. Um, I think, I say this in humility, I think that the church of Philadelphia, like the church at Smyrna, is promised that, listen, a time of suffering is coming. Um, A time of trial is coming. A, A time of testing is coming. But I promise you that no matter what happens, church, nothing will separate you from my love. I will spiritually protect you. And listen, this is not a church, excuse me, this is not just a promise for the church of Philadelphia. This is a promise for you and I today. I will never forget being in college and going to a campus ministry and I, I can still see it, the pastor in, in the middle of his sermon saying, you all have your entire lives ahead of you. And he goes, I don't know what's going to come, but I, I can promise you that there will be suffering. <laughs> and that there will be suffering that if you were to know now, you would be totally crushed by. You wouldn't be able to handle it. It, it was a real pick-me-up of a message. He's like, I can promise you that's coming. But I can promise you that in the midst of it, Jesus will not leave you. I can promise you that no matter what comes your way, it will not separate you from the love of God. We did not see 2020 coming. Right? And I don't know what the next year is going to bring. But Shades, I do know this, that in the midst of everything that's happening, in the midst of all the pain and the suffering, in the midst of all the exhaustion, in the midst of all of the uncertainty, Jesus has promised that he's going to take all of that and he's going to use it to make you more like him. If you are in Christ, no matter what comes, no matter what suffering, no matter what anxiety, no matter what uh, disease or illness, no matter what loneliness you feel, no matter what pain you experience, it will not separate you from God. And it's not meaningless. So often during the season, I have uh, felt the, just the futility of the moment sometimes. It just feels that way, right? And that can be so crushing. Jesus says none of it's meaningless. I'm going to use it all. I'm going to use it all to sanctify my church, to sanctify you. So don't leave me. 
Don't walk away from me because I'm working. I'm working. I'm working. It's a beautiful promise. Okay. Fourth promise. And the final promise that I want to point out from this passage is that Jesus promises to make his church a pillar in God's temple. A pillar in the temple of God. And he promises to give them a threefold name. Threefold name. Look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12, To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Um, I've been slowly working through a book by Ben Myers uh, on the Apostles' Creed. It's a lovely little work. I would commend it to you. I've enjoyed it. And I've just gotten to uh, his chapter on where he speaks about, talks about the phrase, the life everlasting, right? At the end of the Apostles' Creed, right before Amen. The life everlasting. And he says this about this phrase, and it stood out to me. I thought it was interesting. He says, There is nothing especially appealing about the thought of living forever. Sounds a little counterintuitive for us at first, right? Because there's nothing especially appealing about the thought of living forever. Um, He quotes a writer who tells the story of a man who drinks from a river of immortality. And the man becomes immortal. Uh, But without death, the man's life lacks definition. There's no end. It just goes on and on and on. And so for this man, his life doesn't mean anything. Right? And so one day this man learns of another river that can take immortality away. And so for centuries, he wanders the earth and drinks from every spring and every river seeking to end the curse of endless life. Myers makes this point about the book. Uh, You cannot make life better just by increasing its quantity. What matters most is quality. You cannot make life better by just increasing its quantity. What matters most is quality. The four promises that God gives in the verses are four aspects of one promise. What's that promise? The promise is communion and intimacy with God forever. Uh, The promise about being a pillar in the temple. Uh, The temple in the Old Testament is where heaven and earth intersected. It's where God was powerfully present among his people. And Jesus here promises, church, you will be pillars in the temple. This is, this is a promise of immovability and security in the presence of God. Jesus also says that he'll write upon his people the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, 
in my new name. Uh, These are all expressions of eternal union and fellowship with God in his presence. Uh, It's like Jesus says over and over again, you're mine. That's who you are. Uh, Do you feel alone? You're mine. Do you feel like a failure? You're mine. Do you feel insignificant? You're mine. Do you feel unequipped? You're mine. Are you worried about what's coming? Are you crippled by fear of the future? You're mine. As a kid, and to be honest, even still some today, the thought of eternity is too much for me to think about. My, my brain starts to melt, to melt, not milk. That's, that doesn't mean anything that I know of. My brain starts to melt. Maybe you experience this too as you try to think about eternity, right? Uh, if you're like me, you just start going into a panic attack. This is why we must have our vision of eternity so soaked in Scripture. This is why an understanding of eternal life, an understanding of heaven devoid from the presence of Jesus is to sell ourselves way short and to miss the biblical vision. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I came so that they may have life and what? Have it abundantly. Jesus says this is eternal life. What's eternal life for Jesus? Endless golf? Maybe. I'm not going to throw that out. But he says that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus promises, and this is such a good word for us today, that eternal life is not a little better version of the life that you're experiencing now. Eternal life is being caught up in the joy and the endless an all-satisfying love and life of God. God from eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has existed in a relationship of self-giving love. And for those of us in Christ, eternal life means existing in relationship with that life forever. That life we have now, we know only in small part. We only get a taste of it. But as I think about an eternity with Jesus, that does not cause a panic attack. When I think about eternity with Jesus, it gives me peace, security. Jesus wants his church to hear, I promise you, you're mine now and forever. And that's good news. My preaching professor, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., who we recently got the privilege of interviewing on the podcast, uh, said this. If you haven't got a a chance, a little plug for Shades Midweek here at the end, go check it out. Such an amazing interview. Um, But he often said in class that the Lord will make you live your sermon before he will allow you to preach it. He said, the Lord will make you live your sermon before you will allow to preach it. And so, can I just confess that this week, I have felt weak. <laughs> I have felt small. And often, I've had a very small view of God. I've had a very small view 
of Jesus. And it just doesn't feel like coincidence. It's almost like God was saying, Brad, if you're going to call people who are struggling, suffering, feel weak and tired at their end, if you're going to cause them to find comfort and hope in the promises of God, then you're going to have to do that. In, in your weakness, as you feel small, as you look to me and you think I'm small, you're going to have to run to my promises. So, does it feel like the walls are closing in on you? Rest in the promise that Jesus has opened to you the doors of salvation and no one will shut them. Does Jesus look small to you? Rest in the reality that Jesus never ceases to work. Even in the hardest moments, he's there. And no matter how small he looks, there's nothing small about him. He is powerfully working, even in the hardest of hearts, until every knee bows before him. Are you weary of the trials of this world? Does it seem like it's just one thing after the next? And does that lead you to a place of futility? Would you rest in the promise that in this very moment, Jesus is taking all the complexity of everything that's happening and he's using it to conform you to him? Do you feel uncertain about the future? Are you just filled with fear when you think about the future? Rest in the promise that your future is one of intimacy, delight, and joy in God.